What is going on, you guys? It is Jake here coming to you all on a Sunday night here, February 4th. This is coming out the following Monday of the 5th. Just wanted to open this with a little bit of an explanation for something different uh, on today's Monday podcast. This is a deep dive into David Rubenstein, who, of course, is going to be the new uh, controlling person, the majority owner, in effect, of the Baltimore Orioles uh, as soon as Peter Angelos passes away and the Angelos family divests into minority owners. This is a little bit of a, uh, a deep dive that I wanted to put together on Rubenstein. Uh, he's always struck me, and, you know, I say always, but uh, really he's only sort of kind of quasi-been in our lives here for the past month or so. Uh, news started to kind of leak out in December of 2023, so just a few months ago that uh, this sale might eventually be taking place. Obviously, uh, the news became official last week, confirmed through John Orend uh, of Puck News. And basically what I wanted to do was go back through uh, David's history a little bit, uh, see where he attained his wealth from uh, as a private equity investor. Uh, but I also was interested to see that he got to start working in government, in law, politics, things of that nature. Uh, just a really interesting guy um, working for the Carlisle Group, uh, the firm that he founded. We'll get into all of this in the deep dive, obviously, so stay tuned for that. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to open this up with a quick explanation that it is a little bit of a deep dive into him, who he is, his upbringing here in Northwest Baltimore. Uh, his move into law, like I said, uh, working in D.C. with Carlisle uh, and within the government in Jimmy Carter's administration, uh, and then everything that he did to accumulate his wealth to get him to this point where he is going to be a big part of our lives as the owner of the Orioles. So I uh, just wanted to open with an explanation of that, as well as a quick shout out to our sponsors, uh, Jimmy's Famous Seafood, as always a great supporter. Uh, we've been working really closely with them the last couple of months uh, as far as getting out to events that they've hosted, uh, Q&As with different Ravens players and such. RDT has been doing some stuff with the Orioles with them going back to last year. Uh, and there's probably going to be plenty more of that to come. So shout out to Jimmy's Famous Seafood, of course. Also to Fed Thrill. Uh, been a little bit sunny here in the Baltimore area the last couple of days. Hopefully that continues. Shout out to Pucks of 20 Phil uh, and his shadow and whether you saw it, didn't saw it, whatever. I, I don't know exactly what it is, but projecting that early spring. So get on over to fedthrillsunglasses.com. Use your promo code exit 52 for 20% off any pair of shades. And of course, our guys over at Black Eyed Susan Spices, who always have the uh, the great hot sauce stuff running uh, out onto the shelves there at your local Ace Hardware. If you're in Baltimore or the D.C. suburbs, uh, blackeyedspices.com, promo code exit 52 for 10% off any of their stuff. Uh, we love working with them and uh, we hope you guys will indulge and the great stuff that they have going on. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to open this up with that quick explanation and a shout out to our sponsors as always. Uh, and now here is my deep dive that I put together on David Rubenstein. Hope you guys enjoy. I'll admit, when I saw this quote from New Baltimore Orioles majority owner David Rubenstein, I immediately felt a bit of a bad taste in my mouth. Growing up in a family where your father is pretty wealthy is much more complicated than growing up in a family where your father is not wealthy. When I read it, my knowledge on Rubenstein was fairly limited. I only knew of the surface-level information I would gleaned on him from when the rumors began to swirl about him potentially buying the club back in December of 2023. A Baltimore native who'd moved on to bigger and better things in New York and D.C. as a private equity maven that dabbled in media through involvement in Bloomberg, the image in my head was one of a master of the universe for whom life had come easy every step of the way. As it happens, this isn't quite the case. Rubenstein is more of a blue-collar kid who made good on Wall Street than I ever would have imagined, and not in a Jordan Belfort type of way either. Reading through his history, it's clear that he has the chops. And all that began in a modest, northwest Baltimore neighborhood in the late 1950s. My father dropped out of high school to go into World War II, he told the New York Times in a Q&A profile in 2020. He served in the Marines in the Pacific, came back, met my mother, married her not too long thereafter. 
She dropped out of high school to get married. We lived in Northwest Baltimore and my family was part of the Schleppers, the blue collar people who all lived in these narrow little row houses. My father went to work in the post office and spent his entire life there and retired when he was 55 and moved to Florida. It's in this same article that Rubenstein drops the quote about life being less complicated when you grow up on the poorer side of the spectrum. He makes it clear that he wasn't starving or needing for anything thanks to his parents' work ethic, but also views his socioeconomic and religious background as one that at the time could be quite limiting, especially for someone with ambitions like his. When you're growing up in the 1950s in a blue-collar family, you didn't aspire to make a billion dollars the way they do today, he said. If you went into business, you only went in for one of two ways. If you were not Jewish, you would go to work for Morgan Stanley, Procter & Gamble, IBM, Standard Oil. If you were, let's say, ethnic, to use a phrase like that, you would go into your family's business, whatever it was. If you didn't have a family business, you would be a lawyer or a doctor or a dentist if you were Jewish. It was a big advantage in hindsight, because when you grew up relatively poor, and I don't want to make it sound like I was poverty-stricken, I had parents, I wasn't living in an orphanage, you have to learn to do things on your own and so forth. As someone who's done a lengthy podcast project on the history of the Baltimore Colts, Rubenstein's background reminded me a bit of a former Baltimore sports owner as well as a current one who's the only other game in town. The former was Carol Rosenblum, who was also brought up in a Jewish family in Baltimore and was a student at Baltimore City College, the same high school that Rubenstein, who was born in 1949, would attend decades later before moving on into his father's clothing business where he made an individual killing and retired young. Eventually, Rosenblum came back to town as a wealthy and high-rolling owner of the Baltimore Colts during the 50s and 60s, their unquestioned glory years. The latter figure I'm reminded of is, of course, Steve Bishotti, who was raised in a middle-class Italian family, tragically losing his father at a young age. Bishotti didn't let this deter him in life and moved on to found the tech staffing firm Aerotech, now Tech Systems, which would lead him to the level of wealth needed to buy into the Ravens in the early 2000s and eventually usurp Art Modell as majority owner. These stories, along with Rubenstein's, add some real color to his quote about wealth inhibiting ambition and dulling out drive to achieve in an interesting way. And when you hear the rest of the quote, you'll have a better idea of the mentality Rubenstein took from Northwest Baltimore into the higher class worlds of law and finance. When your family is not wealthy, you've got to really achieve something or you're not going to get anywhere, he said. You're on your own. Whereas my own children and the children of families like mine, I think, have a bit of a disadvantage. As a general rule of thumb, the people running the world are people from the blue collar families who are lower middle class. It's rarely the case that somebody whose father was a billionaire turns out to be better than his father, becoming a multi-billionaire or running the world. If you come from a wealthy family, you will have a nice life. But the drive to really get to the top often comes from people who didn't have all those privileges. Whatever your opinions of billionaires and how they achieved or fell into their wealth, it's hard not to see some of what he's saying is the truth. My mind wanders to the four failed children of the Roy family who fumble their way through the four seasons of HBO's succession in perpetually doomed attempts to prove themselves as individually worthy follow-ups to their self-made blue-collar Scottish father, who built his own media empire from scratch. Where that comparison may not be so comforting is the thought of David Rubenstein as a crass and heartless Logan Roy-esque character who'd cover up serious scandals to cover his own ass and throw his subordinates under the bus to take the fall without a second thought, to say nothing of the overall toxic business culture he'd cultivate depicted by the show. But thankfully, Rubenstein doesn't appear to have this harsh edge, at least on a personal level. In his media work for Bloomberg, he comes across as the right combination of sharp but affable and disarming, something on full display in an interview he conducted with Sheila Johnson, founder and CEO of Salamander Collection. The topic they're discussing is pretty interesting in hindsight. Um, also an owner, I should have pointed out, of uh, three major sports teams. That's right. Right? Um, and you're the first woman, as I understand it, the first woman to own three major, uh, have stake in three major sports teams, is that right? Yes, and we'll say African-American. You were approached 
by the owner then of the, I guess, the Washington Wizards and the Washington Caps about um, maybe buying the Washington Mystics, which is the female, the women's basketball team. And what did you say? Well, first of all, Zade Poland, um, he did come to me and Susan O'Malley, and they said, Abe Poland says, look, I want you to be the face of the Washington Mystics. And I said, what do you mean be the face of? He says, I want you to buy this team. He, his health was failing. And I, I have to tell you, and a lot of women can understand this, we never get these opportunities. So that was the first thing that struck me. And um, I was flattered. I was really flattered. I said, well, Abe, what are the financials on this? And he handed them to me. He says, well, they're not making money. So what happened was you were offered a money-losing women's basketball team, and you said, I don't want to just be the face of a money-losing basketball team. I want to be in the other sports as well. Is that right? Well, yeah, you know, you got to be smart about this. Okay. All you right. got to be smart. There's, you know, there's three teams that can share losses and profits. Right. And so now you're an owner of the Washington Caps, the Washington Wizards, the Washington Mystics. Right. Any more sports teams? It isn't clear at the time of this recording when Rubenstein became earnestly interested in the idea of owning a sports franchise. As you'll see with most owners of teams who don't inherit them, he'd spend much of his youth working towards accumulating the money he'd need for it. Whether that was always the end goal or not, Rubenstein graduated from Baltimore City College in the 1960s and went on to attend Duke University, which he was able to afford thanks to a combination of scholarships, student loans, and working part-time while studying political science. He graduated magna cum laude in 1970 and moved on to the University of Chicago, where he earned his JD in 1973 after also serving as an editor at the University of Chicago Law Review, an earlier peek at the idea of him going into media in some capacity. Of course, that would be far down the road and after a career change. Rubenstein worked in law from 1973 to 1975 for the New York-based firm Paul, Weiss, Rifkind, Wharton, and Garrison. Over this brief period, he couldn't shake the feeling that he'd gone down the wrong path for himself. His heart wasn't in the work, and he readily admits the idea that he just simply wasn't cut out for it. A page dedicated to Rubenstein on Investopedia details this a bit more. Rubenstein claimed whenever he thought about leaving and communicated this to the firms he was working for, none of his partners or clients pleaded with him not to leave. He took this as a sign that he wasn't a good lawyer. I wasn't going to be a Richard Posner. I wasn't any kind of legal genius, he said. While it may seem like an uncharacteristically modest admission for someone of his wealth and stature, it isn't a false modesty. This is made clear by the fact that Rubenstein makes no apologies for the success he's enjoyed in the fields he's truly passionate about. One of those is, of course, finance, which he'd make his way to eventually, but not before a stop in D.C. working in politics in various capacities. He'd become interested in working in politics at just 11 years old, when he'd heard then-President John F. Kennedy implore American citizens to, quote, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. This inspired him towards his pursuit of a poli-sci degree at Duke to work in government law, and also what inspired him to taking a job as chief counsel to Senator Birch Bay on the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee Subcommittee on Constitutional Amendments in 1975. While holding this position, his mother had visited him and marveled at the fact that he was working within politics, joking that he'd made the right decision to eschew dentistry, the career path she'd wanted him to pursue. He quit back to her that the next time she visited he'd be working in the White House. He was right. In 1977, he accepted the role of Deputy Domestic Policy Advisor to President Jimmy Carter, alongside some continued private law practice in the D.C. area on the side. Rubenstein's career path began to follow that of former Kennedy speechwriter Ted Sorensen, who'd helped pen the Ask Not line that had inspired him as a child. According to him, this was all by design. I didn't think I had the money to be a candidate. The charm, the looks, the personality, he said. 
I could be the advisor. And so my role model was Ted Sorensen, who had written the great speech. Within the Carter administration, his profile really began to rise, not just as a hard worker, but one with a good attitude. I've met lots of people who've gotten to be quite big, said former CBS White House correspondent Rita Braver in a Washington Post piece on Rubenstein. They have a certain swagger about them, and they're always trying to let you know how important they are. With David, it's quite the opposite. He's got no swagger, and he is sweet. Braver also stated that whenever she was working on a story late into the night, that Rubenstein would be the only staffer available for a call to help with background, and he'd do it happily. Describing Rubenstein as one of President Carter's most effective aides, Newsweek dubbed him the, quote, White House workaholic, something his former boss, and one-time leader of the free world, confirmed in a separate interview. He never put himself forward, Jimmy Carter said of Rubenstein. He was always very reticent about taking the initiative to speak up, but when I would ask him a question, he would invariably know the answer. Stuart Eisenstadt worked with David in the same role for Carter, and recalls him similarly. David certainly didn't have charisma, he said. There was almost a negative charisma. But what he had was a sort of intensity of intellect and dedication and devotion to public service. That endeared you to him. That was its own magnetism. No one would have anticipated that he would be where he is today. It's a real story about how a person can grow and develop and surprise everybody, except himself. While these years were proved fruitful to him in the sense that they were when he met his wife Alice and cultivated a positive image for himself among a powerful sect of society, they ultimately didn't turn out how he'd hoped. With a post-Vietnam malaise gripping the country on top of concrete issues such as a faltering economy and the gas crisis, Carter's run as president was a one-term bid in which he was unceremoniously ousted for Ronald Reagan, a man whose persona and promised policies suggested a hard right turn to try and jumpstart the country back into positive action. With Rubenstein and his fellow staffers scattered to the wind after just four short years, which they thought would be a start to a long and promising career in politics, he found himself once again back at square one. I tried to help my country, and it didn't work, he later said. We got thrown out. When you get 19% inflation, you don't think your country is waiting for you to come back. After the Carter years, he got back into practicing law full-time, but the combination of his heart not being in it, plus the germ of an entrepreneurial idea forming, would prove to be definitive in his move into a new sector, finance. In a newspaper article, he had read about former U.S. Deputy Treasury Secretary William Simon and a partner named Ray Chambers purchasing a company called Gibson Greeting Cards with a million dollars of their own money plus $79 million worth of debt in what's known as a leverage buyout, a financial tactic used on Wall Street that became famous and in some ways infamous in the 80s. Simon and Chambers then went to work trimming the fat off the company and took it public at a $290 million valuation. Rubenstein's interest was piqued, and previous ideas about getting involved with financial firms in a legal role as his next move were quickly scrapped. He had read somewhere that entrepreneurs typically started their businesses between the ages of 28 and 37, and after crossing into their late 30s, it was much less likely for a person to successfully get one off the ground. He took that as a sign and spent the first half of the 1980s attempting to do just that after learning about leverage buyouts. I thought I wasn't going to go back into government. I didn't have a great future as a lawyer, and I took a gamble, he said. Many people who start companies don't do it for logical reasons. There were a few false starts along the way, but in 1987, at 38 years old, David Rubenstein officially founded the Carlyle Group in Washington, D.C. after a few years of planning and fundraising. The founding partners included Marriott executive Stephen Norris, investors from T. Rowe Price, Alex Brown & Sons, and the Richard K. Mellon family. The firm's name doesn't have any meaning beyond it being borrowed from an upscale hotel in New York City. Rubenstein's initial fit in the finance world was an awkward one. Within his law and political careers, he liked to keep his head down and his work technical, similar to his days as a policy wonk in the Carter administration, where he was described as possessing a negative charisma. At one point, Norris walked into his office and noticed Rubenstein buried in paperwork. 
When he joked that David should get up and try to get some exercise, Rubenstein told him to, quote, think of this as me playing golf. But Rubenstein also understood that if Carlisle was going to grow, he couldn't stay cooped up in his office all the time, especially given that he was somewhat behind the curve as a neophyte in the financial sector. I realized I didn't have the financial skills that the other guys had, Rubenstein recalled. I thought one of the useful things I could do would be to help raise money to invest in companies. So I made myself into a salesman, in effect, and a fundraiser. While it didn't come naturally to him, the process of coming out of his shell in this way led to the growth of Carlisle and to Rubenstein on a personal level. Ed Mathias, who was one of the T. Rowe-based founding partners of Carlisle, noticed that David doing this for the good of the firm led to plenty of good for himself, even if that wasn't his intention. David transformed himself, but I would put it under the guise of he did what was necessary, he said. He's extremely competitive and extraordinarily capable, so he adapted. I don't know that he changed his personality, but he certainly developed the skills that enabled him to be successful. Rubenstein's current day-to-day life, in which he hosts multiple shows on the Bloomberg network and hosts panels in front of hundreds of people, depicts one that's seen a lot of growth from his days as a bookish desk jockey who was a bit lacking in people skills. The aforementioned Washington Post profile on Rubenstein from 2012 details his transformation along with Carlisle as a bootstrapping entrepreneur into one of the most respective leverage buyout officers on the market. The early years were a struggle, it reads. We were basically focused initially on survival, says Norris, who would leave after several years to start his own firm. Carlisle began to find its groove after the partners recruited Frank Carlucci as vice chairman in 1989, later he became chairman, to raise the firm's profile and help spot investment opportunities. Carlisle started buying and selling defense and aerospace contractors, including Magnavox, an electronics manufacturer, profit $270 million, BDM, an information services firm, profit $310 million, and Howmet, a jet engine parts manufacturer, profit $680 million. Investments were made through vehicles called buyout funds, pools of cash that Rubenstein raised from major investors, including wealthy individuals, pension funds, and corporate endowments. Carlisle's piece of the action was the industry standard 20% of the profits on the funds. Rubenstein's fortune started accruing from his share of the 20%, plus the gains on his personal investments in the buyout funds. The other 80% of the profits went to the investors whom Rubenstein had courted. Rubenstein also assumed the role of strategist and mapper of new frontiers that Carlisle should cross. He pioneered the idea of creating multiple funds focused on different industries, geographies, and types of investment. He was one of the first to globalize private equity. Carlisle would ultimately have offices on six continents. As Carlisle's profile rose, Rubenstein saw an opportunity to merge his old career path with a new one and help accelerate things for the firm even further. Using the firm's name along with previous connections in the government, David brought in former Secretary of State James Baker as a partner and former President George H.W. Bush as a senior advisor for Carlisle in the 1990s. David is an inordinately hard worker and totally trustworthy, Bush Sr. said. It doesn't hurt that he also has a great grasp of world affairs and how that intersects with business. Rubenstein describes getting them involved with the company for the express purpose of adding legitimacy. Nobody ever heard of Rubenstein in those days, he said, referring to himself, playing down his own public profile. So if you get invited to a lunch and Rubenstein is going to speak, you're not going to show up. But if Baker is going to speak, you would go. The idea was that Baker or Bush would get up in front of a group of clients and deliver a speech on world affairs that would get an audience in the door. After they were done, Rubenstein or other Carlisle partners would take the podium and begin to brief the crowd on leveraged buyout opportunities. The way Rubenstein describes it, all of this sounds above board, if a bit cute compared to how he had begun his career. Not everyone sees it this way, though. Some journalists at the time, such as Michael Lewis, writing in The New Republic, charged that these government officials were monetizing connections made within the roles of public service and a craven attempt at cashing in after leaving office. Others claimed that public policy was being influenced to sway investors, something that Rubenstein insists that, quote, nobody can ever cite one example of. 
This all came to a head after the turn of the millennium and a particularly strange incident. Suspicions mounted after the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks when it emerged that on that day, Carlisle was hosting a business conference at the Ritz-Carlton in Washington with guests, including a member of the Bin Laden family, reads the Washington Post profile. Bush addressed the conference the day before. Carlisle ended up returning the Bin Laden family's $2 million investment. The event was fodder for a sharp, mocking scene in Michael Moore's documentary Fahrenheit 9-11. Rubenstein said he understood that the growing impression of Carlisle as an unaccountable power player threatened its reputation. I fault myself for letting our image get tarnished, he says. We ended the relationships with the former statesman. get you on the record on this question. Uh, in the White House view, there is uh, no ethical uh, conflict in uh, former President Bush and former Secretary of State Jim Baker using their contacts with world leaders to represent one of the most well-known military arms dealers, the Carlisle Group. The president has full faith that his family will conform with all proper ethics laws, all ethics laws, and will act properly in their conduct. That's some press conference audio from the debacle featured in Fahrenheit 9-11. And while Michael Moore would probably readily admit his bias on topics such as these, the proof is in the pudding that not all of Carlisle's dealings over the years have appeared to be 100% kosher. In 2009, former U.S. Congressman Michael Huffington sued Carlisle and accused the company and Rubenstein of deceptive practices. Rubenstein had formed a relationship with Huffington through George H.W. Bush, and after a courting period, secured a $20 million investment in 2006. The money was put into Carlisle Capital, a European affiliate of the group that specialized in trading mortgage-backed securities, an investment that Rubenstein told Huffington had very little downside. The recession and oncoming real estate crisis would make him eat his words, and after all the $20 million were lost in the investment, Huffington filed the lawsuit. It was eventually dismissed by a Massachusetts federal court after Carlisle lawyers insisted Huffington had been adequately briefed on the risks, but it was in no way a shining example of the wonders of private equity, or a particularly bright moment on an otherwise solid track record Carlisle and Rubenstein had. I don't think that today the reputation of the Carlisle group will be enhanced, Rubenstein said. However, we have a 20-year reputation and track record of yielding probably the highest rate of return on any private equity firm that has invested as much money as we have. Going forward, the way we hope to handle this is to be honest, forthright, and recognize mistakes were made and reassure people around the world about Carlisle. It's important that people say that Carlisle are people who stand behind what they do, that they are honest, reputable people, and that they are the kind of people who we think are appropriate custodians of our money. Unfortunately, in this case, it did not work. When you look back at things, we hope people will say this was not Carlisle's darkest hour. We hope people will look back and say that this is a very strong hour for Carlisle. We will help investors, we will be transparent about our mistakes, and we'll be careful to recognize what we can do to improve our performance in the future. This is largely on the money to what would wind up happening in the succeeding years, and does paint the picture of Rubenstein's development into a smooth-talking leader of men in a pretty declarative way. It wasn't the last controversy Carlisle would face, though, as in 2020, the firm came under fire for their investment into mobile home developments, where they jacked up rent prices to a largely lower income install base of clients. John Oliver did a piece on the controversy in which he took Carlisle and several other PE outfits to task for this practice. The Ingall family decided to sell the park, and they sold it to the Carlisle group. First of all, Carlisle started off with an immediate 8% increase space rent. So that was a threat to most of us who are living on fixed income. I don't know what's going to happen. I may be forced to leave everything, my doctors, my friends, the life I've known here even though I own my home. It's true. 
that woman may lose her home, so the Carlyle Group, an investment firm with $216 billion in assets, can make more money for their shareholders. If the concept of income inequality came to life, that is the sentence it would scream when it orgasmed. Now, <laughs> Carlyle... Carlisle insists that the price hikes were to pay for park improvements, which makes complete sense. If you ask these fuckers why they got into private equity, I'm sure they'd say to you, oh, to break even on investments in the beautification of affordable housing. Why else would we do this? I also apparently have to tell you that Carlisle has a safety net programme for low-income residents, although you should know it only applies to 21 of the 800 lots in that park, so it's a safety net that only catches 3% of people, just like the one they use at my favourite circus, a pile of dead trapeze artists. This is where you'll need to draw your own conclusions in regards to how you feel about a private equity-backed ownership group taking over the Orioles. I have my own reservations about these types of organizations and the impact they're having on our country, not just at large and in the meaningful examples like the one you just heard, but even on the way they're now impacting sports. See all that's gone on and continues to go on in the world of golf. It makes me personally a bit uncomfortable, and all of that is pretty well documented if you're familiar with me at all. But at the end of the day, these are Carlisle controversies, not necessarily David Rubenstein controversies. This is at least what I'll tell myself in the meantime, because frankly, I'm more than willing to give Rubenstein the benefit of the doubt on a personal level. In his media work, which is widely available, he cuts the figure of someone who's curious rather than judgmental, and at the very least principled in his beliefs on the collective good that can be achieved by and for this country. As I said, this is more than apparent within his on-camera and on-mic persona, but also shows through in his preservative efforts toward U.S. history. The most famous of these is, of course, his purchase of the Magna Carta, which rather than being a showy look-at-me display of individual wealth, was one aimed at keeping the document preserved and within the right hands as its steward of sorts. He purchased it in 2007 for $21.3 million at auction, and then immediately loaned it to the National Archives in perpetuity, also donating an $800,000 display case for them to display it, and an additional $13.5 million for a permanent exhibit area to house all of this. When it was unveiled, a scrum of reporters put out the question on if anyone could please give the attending group, quote, Magna Carta 101. The Washington Post profile on Rubenstein details his response to this in a telling way. Yes, I can do it, Rubenstein replied, and he casually launched into a detailed disquisition on English feudal politics, kings, popes, common law, wax seals, and the march of human rights from the years 1215 and 1297 to 1776, 1787, and 1791. The performance was vintage Rubenstein, late Rubenstein, a man in whom the various strands of his life appear to be coming together in a satisfying way. The charisma-challenged White House wonk has become a speechmaker, much in demand, from the economic forums of Davos, Switzerland, to Washington think tanks and corporate retreats and college campuses. Droll. Deadpan. Fact-filled. The piece further details his philanthropy in a way that better explains than I could, giving numerous examples of it all, as well as some great color on what brought him to it in the first place. Last year at the Kennedy Center, it begins, Rubenstein adroitly hosted a large and solemn gathering of the diplomatic and political tribes of Washington, including President Obama and former President Bill Clinton, at a memorial service for the go-to special envoy, Richard Holbrook. He set the tone of it in a way that was clearly thought out, but came across as being conversational and casual, so it felt more intimate, says Strobe Talbot, president of the Brookings Institution, where Rubenstein is a vice chairman. On stage at the Aspen Institute Ideas Festival last year, Rubenstein spent an entertaining hour comparing and contrasting what he said were the two greatest presidential speeches, the Kennedy inaugural I Was Inspired By It and Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, which he memorized in the fifth grade. At the same time, he has become Washington's Mr. Fix-It, Philanthropy may be one way a rich man can answer Kennedy's ask what question. 
Rubenstein started his streak of serious giving in 2002, the same year he course-corrected Carlisle's image towards more openness, with a $5 million gift toward the completion of a public policy building at Duke. It was also around then that he realized, actuarially speaking, that he had lived about two-thirds of his life. He decided it was time to get busy as a philanthropist. You can only do three things with your money, he says. You can spend it, you can invest it, or you can give it away. And if you invest it, you're really just getting more money to give away or buy something. How many things can you buy? So I don't really think there's a lot of choices. The piece goes on to further describe Rubenstein's donations, as well as his hobby of buying and preserving significant documents like the Magna Carta, but it's that last bullet of it that I find particularly telling regarding what brought the man into our lives as Oriole fans. While his philanthropy and stewardship of U.S. history is very admirable, his purchase of his hometown ball club speaks to the 75-year-old's understanding that at a certain age, it's okay to let one calling fall to the wayside in pursuit of the other. Or maybe it's that he's officially closing the loop on things, and after a productive life in which he left Baltimore to carve out a career in the high societal worlds of politics and finance, he's ready to utilize all that he learned to develop within himself along this road to bring some fulfillment back to his hometown. The specifics of where his interest in buying the club came from and how the deal came together are still foggy as of this recording, but given the context clues of Peter Angelos being in poor health and the tumultuous few years of his son John manning the club as a control person, it isn't hard to see where someone of Rubenstein's means would sense an opportunity. Similar to when Ross Perot put the Magna Carta up for auction, he now has a chance to swoop in and serve as steward of a sacred public trust here in Charm City, and none of the importance of that seems lost on him at all. This shows in his group of investing partners, including Mike Arrighetti, Michael Bloomberg, Grant Hill, Kurt Schmoke, and Cal Ripken Jr., among others, who project as serious power players that will help Rubenstein get the club to the level he believes it can get to. Whether they'll get there or not remains to be seen, but it's hard not to feel optimistic as a fan of the club, given the talent on the diamond and in the farm, the recent lease agreement being finalized, and now what appears to be a serious group of owners finally coming into the fray. To close this thing out, I'll leave you with the official statement from the man himself, David Rubenstein, on the transaction becoming public. I am grateful to the Angelos family for the opportunity to join the team I have been a fan of my entire life, he wrote. I look forward to working with all the Orioles owners, players, and staff to build upon the incredible success that this team has achieved in recent seasons. Our collective goal will be to bring a World Series trophy back to the city of Baltimore. To the fans, I say we do it for you and can't do it without you. Thank you for your support. Importantly, the impact of the Orioles extends far beyond the baseball diamond. The opportunity for the team to catalyze development around Camden Yards and in downtown Baltimore will provide generations of fans with lifelong memories and create additional economic opportunities for our community. Go Orioles!